Welcome to the Diabetics Doing Things podcast. We've been telling the amazing stories of type 1 diabetics all across the world since 2015, and we have over a thousand years of living with T1D on the podcast. The interviews range from incredible feats to everyday victories, and we celebrate them all just the same. Thanks for listening, and if you want to get involved even further, just send me an email at rob at diabeticsdoingthings.com. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We are telling the amazing stories of type 1 diabetics from all across the world. My very special guest today is David Winkler. Uh, We're calling from Del Mar, California. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. And David, I'm going to do my best here uh, because your you know, the list of your accomplishments is is long. Your impact on the Type One community uh, is is storied to say the least. Uh, so, you are the co-founder and board chair of Diabetes Research Connection, which we're going to talk a lot about today. Uh, you're also the co-founder and board chair of the Pediatric Diabetes Research Center in San Diego, uh, and we're going to talk about kind of how those things are interrelated in this interview. Uh, most relevant to our conversation today uh, is that you were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes 58 years ago uh, at age 6. So, you know, been living, I believe you will be either the longest or the second longest uh, life with type 1 on this podcast. I got another gentleman uh, who is either 57 or 59 years with T1D. So um, you're, uh, you're leading the pack in more ways than one. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's uh, good to be here and good to be alive because when i was diagnosed they said i'd never make it this far so yeah I and i think a lot, of, give a lot of hope to people who have the disease that they can lead a long healthy life and i think that's something that's especially relevant to me you know 13 years in um especially with the amount of research and the amount of technology available to me today since diagnosis compared to you know when you were 13 years in the amount of technology that was available uh, you're living a great life and have lived a full life to this point and, you know, without all of those advantages. So I am just super encouraged for anybody, for myself and for anybody living with T1D today that, um, you know, the outlook is, is strong, at least in my opinion. Well, when I was diagnosed, as you mentioned, at age six, um, my parents were told I probably wouldn't live past 30. And the fact of the matter is I was diagnosed along with another uh, student in my elementary school. And unfortunately, he lived to be 27, but he died of hypoglycemia, which is clearly still an issue, not as big an issue as it used to be with with CGMs. But um, the fact that one in 17 type 1s still dies of, uh, of hypoglycemia is enough to Keep, I hope all of us motivated to want to find a cure for this disease because notwithstanding some folks' longevity, uh, for those of us that have experienced hypoglycemia and ended up in the hospital or in worse situations, car accidents or whatever, we, we've got to stay on top of it. So um, I'm, I'm just amazed that um, I got through what I affectionately refer to as the Stone Age because when I was... Six uh, in 1960, 
I literally had to sharpen my needles, boil my syringes, and inject insulin once a day, NPH derived from um, either pigs or cows, and would have allergic reactions to those insulins. And needless to say, one injection a day doesn't cut it. And those were the days when nobody was counting carbs. And, um, and my blood sugars, as evidenced by my urine tests, were kind of all over the place. So the good news is we've made huge strides. The bad news, as I mentioned, is we're still side effects from this disease, and it's incumbent on all of us to do all we can to try to normalize some blood glucose levels. So I've, I've seen, um, seen a great evolution in, um, in diabetes care, but, but I would still hope that um, we can finally put an end to this at some point, which is why I'm interested in diabetes research. Yeah, and I think... Ultimately, if we're all being honest, that we we would say that's what we're most hopeful for uh, is, you know, eliminating the disease. That number that you just said earlier, one in 17 type ones die of hypoglycemia was pretty staggering to me. I didn't realize it was that uh, that common. Uh, I do know that that is many type one diabetics greatest fear is, is going low in the night, maybe and not being able to feel it and uh, having a hypoglycemic episode. Um but you know that number still stood out. Like even with today's technology, that number is uh, you know extremely high and uh, and unfortunate. Yeah, it is, and and I would encourage any type one diabetic to get a continuous glucose meter because with the alarm settings, there is no reason to die from hypoglycemia. There might have been in the old days, but today there there isn't no reason. If you if you have a CGM, and I realize that affordability is is a significant issue but as many have said that device is is in my opinion and many others opinion more important than a um than a, a, an insulin pump so um but ultimately and now we're finally at the day where we're starting to develop closed loop systems and there's many there are many companies that are planning to come out with those and and that should be a nice interim solution before we have what i think is either going to be a biologic solution or possibly a biochemical solution so well and i I definitely want to dive into what those options and solutions may look like um but before we do that um you know where we find our before we dive into where we find ourselves today and, and what you're doing and the things you're up to uh in the present day Take me back through, you know, sometimes like dirt, li- growing up with and living with type one in the, you know, the '60s and '70s when there was limited technology. You mentioned uh, checking your blood sugar on a urine stick, uh, boiling your needles. Um, I imagine there were decisions you had to make in that time of whether or not to chase opportunities or to do things that uh, that you wanted to do or you know maybe try to be more pragmatic about some things or opportunities you had to turn down. How did you, how did you manage those? Uh, how did you manage your life with, with type one back then? Um, and, it, you know, tell us about some of those stories. Well, one of the biggest issues for me when I got the news that I might not live past 30 was whether or not I should make the effort in school and uh, try to be a productive member of society or, uh, just kind of throw in the towel and 
go for the ride till I was 30 and have a good time and be done with it. Um, fortunately, I had a brother-in-law who was an endocrinologist, and he he was convinced even back then that if I could normalize my blood sugars as much as possible, um, in other words, to be like a non-diabetic, that there was, a, in his opinion, a high probability I would live a lot longer. And fortunately, it turns out he was right. I mean, this was before the DCCT trials, which showed clearly um, reduction in complications and increased longevity. And in fact, some recent studies have shown that a type 1 diabetic can live as long as a normal person, assuming they take good care of themselves. So I have always been a proponent of that, and and while I was discouraged in my in my youth, I knew it was important to exercise and to um, be careful about what I was eating, as well as drinking once I got off to college. Uh, there were times as I was on my way to go to law school and in law school when I still wondered how long I'd be living, uh, but I just said, you know, I'm going to plan on living a long life, and I'm going to do everything I can to um, to reduce complications and extend longevity, and and I guess it's paid off, uh, as evidenced by the fact that I'm 64 now. So um, I, I encourage everyone out there to take really good care of themselves um, and and live with the disease. And if there are people along the way that you're worried about not accepting you, whether it's a, a mate or a girlfriend or a boyfriend, I just wouldn't worry about it. You don't want to have anything to do with somebody who doesn't accept you with your disease. And in fact, uh, a prospective mate who does accept what you, what you have as a type 1 diabetic, I think is... Um, the kind of person you want to be with. I, mean, I, I know very many loving spouses of type 1s, often called type 3s, um, who are right there for you. And I know of type 1s that have married each other, and a couple uh, that I know of as of last week are getting married. So there's there's no reason to let this disease get of your life other than having to tend to it. And it's like any other um, disease, but um, as far as my history goes, I I, um, I decided I wanted to do research in type one diabetes, um, and uh, studied biology in college. Uh, spent a fair amount of time in laboratories, and ultimately concluded that that environment was not where I wanted to be. I, I was just too interested in um, uh, more social activities and and um, getting more government funding, uh, ended up going to law school with the uh, idea of, of potentially trying to change laws with respect to uh, folks with type 1, and um, ultimately, mostly as a volunteer, I was kind of going broke and had clients who were doing real estate, and I made the decision to go into real estate law and then real estate investing just to make money so that I could then use that money to buy more research and to um, help support scientists who are off their efforts. And um, so that's why I've supported organizations like ADA, JDRF, 
um, and then the University of California, San Diego, to establish the Pediatric Diabetes Research Center, and now most currently the Diabetes Research Connection. So um, I think it's incumbent on all of us who want to see an end to this disease to try to help those scientists because we're losing some of them to other fields given that um, that there have been NIH cutbacks and there obviously hasn't been much increase for inflation. Um, and even JDRF has cut back on funding. So we've got to look to some of these alternative forms of, of um, contributions to help support the scientists so they, they stick with the T1D. Well, and I think... I want to talk a little bit about that just in general, and um, if if my own ignorance doesn't uh, has made a connection that doesn't uh, that isn't there, please let me know. But I had a similar conversation uh, a while ago talking about endocrinology, where there's almost if unless you are a type one or have type one in your family or some connection to an endocrine endocrine related disease there's almost no benefit to becoming an endocrinologist because there are less opportunities for funding and less money. Uh, and I might be paraphrasing here, but th- that's my, at least that was my takeaway from the conversation. Is it, and it's, and it sounds like you're saying it's similar from the research side. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly plenty of uh, diabetes to go around, particularly type two that keep a lot of endocrinologists busy. Um, but whether the compensation is adequate or not, I don't know. A specialist, in my opinion, should be compensated more because they've had additional training in the specialty. And the evolution of um, of the science has been significant. There's there's something like 30 or so drugs out there that are uh, available for type twos. Not not quite as many for type ones, but um, uh, just knowing how all those drugs work and the interactions and what's better suited for one individual versus another. I mean, it's it's critical information, and then seeing how the patient responds to those various medications is also important. So, um, you know, our whole healthcare system uh, is being impacted from a variety of directions, and I'm I'm just hopeful that um, type 1s as well as type 2s um, can get the information that they need from physicians and others to, um, to take optimal care of themselves. Because I've, I've, seen, I've seen horrible care of, of diabetics and, and the end results. It's, um, it's not great. I've, I've seen the amputations. I've seen the heart disease. I've know of the kidney transplants, and uh, you, you just don't want to go there. Uh, it's just critical for people to exercise, eat right, and get the right medications. Yeah, and I think so. that was something you said earlier that, that struck me. Uh, you were saying at age 64, you know, you're glad that you can live an entire life as long as a, you know, an, a regular person with type 1. But you said, you know, a couple things. Obviously, like diet and exercise um, and, you know, taking and maintaining good control of your diabetes. What are the what are the big takeaways for, you know, for you when you look at a person's life with type one? 
avoid looking to avoid those you know necess- those horrifying com- you know uh, complications that come from lack of control and those things that uh, you know they sort of list doctors list as maybe scare tactics sometimes early on um, what are the most important steps for for uh, patients to take you know in your experience to make sure that they can live that long life well I I think you have to be your own laboratory and that's why a continuous glucose meter is important because you can see the direct impact of various foods uh, you can see the impact of the exercise and to some degree the medications um, and I'm talking about medications that are not related to the diabetes. For example, the flu season is pretty bad this year. Um, you've got to be careful about the kind of cough syrup you use and the kind of cough drops that you use um, because you're really running a continuous experiment uh, on, on your own body um, to uh, try to optimize glucose levels and keep them within normal range. So um, paying close attention to what's going on with with your blood sugars at all times, I think is critical. Um, And being as knowledgeable as one can about the disease. Um, There are many websites that provide advice. I think it's critical to go to the ones that are credible because there's a lot of misinformation on the um, on the web that that people just can't pay attention to. I mean, uh, all kinds of people claiming they've got cures that are not cures. Um, so it, it's very important to make sure the information you get is credible. And just a plug for our latest charity, we do have news updates on it, and whatever we put on that website is reviewed by several scientists before it goes up to make sure it's credible. We we just will not put junk up there, and I'm sure that JDRF has good quality news, as generally does ADA and Medscape and some other um, credible websites. WebMD is, um, is decent, and then, of course, all the major uh, periodicals like Nature and Cell Biology, um, those you can pretty much rely on, but just watch out for the source. But I encourage people to be as educated as possible about all the various inputs. Um, I think the tape got cut off earlier when I was talking about um, all of the ways in which your blood sugar can be impacted, and it's important to acknowledge those um, ranging from stressful situations. Um, When those endorphins start pouring on, they'll raise your blood sugar. If you have a larger bolus of insulin versus a smaller one, it seems like the absorption rate is not proportional because of the surface area and the rate of absorption. Also, I have found that when I'm sleeping, if I get up in the middle of the night and I have higher blood sugar and I inject insulin, it doesn't lower my blood sugar as quickly as during the daytime because there's not as much movement of interstitial fluid and and circulation generally. So uh, there's things like altitude that that raise blood sugar and make it somewhat unpredictable. So those things are on top of the diet and exercise and um, quantities of insulin that 
a type one is taking. It's, in my opinion, it's it's important to be on top of all these variables, um, and especially uh, glycemic index of food, because you can see your blood sugar go up from fats and proteins. If you have, if you load up on the, with enough of it, it'll show up later. Um, one of the things that our charity did as a fundraiser um, was to have an event where we served beer and wine and talked about the impact of beer and wine on the blood sugar and how um, alcohol in drinks shuts down the liver and and then later on the liver releases the extra glucose. So you've got to watch alcohol percentage levels as well as carbohydrate levels and and alcoholic drinks. So there's there's just so much to know about all this, and I don't mean to confuse people, but, but the more you know, the more you can understand why your blood sugar just took off or why it just went down, because sometimes it doesn't seem like there's any rhyme or reason to it, and um, it's important to know how all these variables affect you. Well, and you mentioned earlier um, the just the, the idea that it's a, it's always an experiment that uh, you, just when you think you have it figured out, you know, you're still going to have to keep that sort of scientific experimental mind. And that has been for me, at least much more in focus the last week or so, because I'm uh, for, I guess the next, for 30 days, I'm going off of my pump and my Novolog insulin or Humalog insulin rather uh, fast acting prescription and I'm going completely over the counter. So I'm using NPH and R, um, and injections. And I've never, I never took NPH or R early on because I always had prescription, uh, insurance. So I've had to kind of learn, uh, relearn, you know, what my life was like when it was a little bit more regimented and I have had the same time of day that I gave doses and, um, I'm doing it to show that, you know, there are options for people without insurance, uh, to live with type one well at a low cost. Uh, and I've been pretty, um, I've been, I'm pretty encouraged by the results so far that, you know, I haven't had to change much of anything about my life, just be a little bit more disciplined and can live pretty well, which I think is encouraging, but also that, you know, scientific sort of experimental mindset, just when you think you have this thing figured out, it could throw you a loop. You know, just like those, uh, like you were talking about uh, beer and wine uh, and, and alcohol's effect on the blood sugar. You know, there's high protein and slow carb and Whole30 and uh, bulletproof diets that are very ketogenic, that are very popular right now and cause a lot and, you know, call for a lot of fat intake. But you're still going to have to give some insulin for that because of the way that your body processes it. So sort of not all carbs are created equal type conversation, which can be frustrating for people living with uh, living with type one. Right. Just when you think you've got it figured out, another curveball shows up. Well, the, the thing that's remarkable to me is that you can do the exact same thing two days in a row and get different results. It's it's the reverse of the definition of insanity, you know, where you, you do the same thing and expect a different result. Well, with diabetes, that's what happens. There's there's just too many things uh, going on. The moving parts are such that you have to somehow attempt to figure out how they all juxtapose and what the end result's going to be. Um, so I, I can only encourage people to um, try to, try to get on top of many as 
of the variables as there are out there, but even to become aware of ones that you hadn't considered before. Well, and how challenging is that from a research perspective to say, hey, you know, we're going to focus on this one piece, but, you know, there's so many other variables involved. Um, how do you guys overcome those challenges? Well, like with most experiments, you want to try to limit the number of variables so that you can attribute a causal effect to only one or two things. Now, the reality is that's very difficult because, you know, how do you control your stress level? How do you control whether something wakes you up in the middle of the night and disrupts your sleep cycle, which will impact your blood sugars? Um, there's there's just so many things that go on. The amount of sleep that you get affects um, blood sugar levels. So it's challenging, uh, and that's why I'm hopeful that we'll first see a mechanical solution because a closed loop um, will adjust for blood sugars that are moving around by either turning on insulin or turning it off, um, and uh, that will help. I mean, we need even faster-acting insulins or another way to put the insulin into our body because we weren't designed to, to receive insulin sub-Q. So there's always a delay in the receipt of that insulin. And you'll find with regular, it's even longer than Humalog or Novolog. You've got to take that meal injection even earlier. And as far as MPH goes, uh, watch out for those afternoon peaks because they've got about an eight-hour peak, and if you inject in the morning, um, you're invariably going to have a peak in the afternoon. And I, I'm not a doctor, and I would suggest you speak with an endocrinologist, but I would think you'd want to do multiple injections of the MPH to try to balance it out and watch out for early morning hypoglycemia as well um, if you take insulin at night. So it's... it's um, going to be a little more challenging. I mean, Atlantis and Levimir were a significant advance because of how much they flattened out the um, release curve. But a pump does it, obviously, even more perfectly, and to the extent you need, a, say, a bolus, a basal bolus in the morning when all of the hormones that wake you up are turning on, that all those hormones raise one's blood sugar. I mean, I've I've had absolutely nothing to eat in the morning and have sometimes seen my blood sugar go up 100 um, milligrams per deciliter uh, just for waking up. And, uh, you know, it's enough to drive you crazy sometimes. But um, oh, I'm, t- I'm telling you, you, go ahead. Sorry. It's, it's funny, like that, that actually happened to me this morning, just that dawn phenomenon, hormones, waking up, yeah. having a cup of coffee. And yep. all of a sudden, you're, uh, yeah, like you said, 100 milligrams per deciliter higher than you were 15 minutes ago. And, you know, it's just, okay, it's like it's going to be that type of day, I guess, huh? All right. Um, and then, you know, like you yeah. said, uh, that one uh, one action does not necessarily, necessarily cause a, an opposite reaction. So you're just, you know, what can I learn from this variable? Well, not too much. Just got to move on to the next one. Yeah, and, and again, that's why I'm optimistic about the closed loop. Granted, there is a significant cost associated with it, but hopefully um, people have good health insurance and can get it covered. But as you probably know, Medtronic's got its closed loop, and there's, I believe, at least four other companies that are getting close. So 
some of them uh, should be out in the next two years, and um, um, I could see a, a lot of use for that. And then, and then, as I said earlier, hopefully we'll see a biologic or a biochemical solution. Um, well, and and you mentioned, and, and I'm looking here. Uh, <laughs> Two days after I started my over-the-counter challenge, uh, I got my Medtronic 670G uh, hybrid closed loop in the mail, so it's like sitting here unboxed, uh, mm. but, but I can't use it, and it's about the most like uh, frustrating timing that the universe has ever thrown me. Um, so I'm going to go from the Stone Age to uh, to the future here in about three weeks, which I'm really excited about. Um, yeah. You mentioned earlier being hopeful as well for a chemical or uh, or a biomechanical uh, solution as well. Can you talk a little bit about some of the research that's going on in those fronts, and uh, you know what what can we expect to see maybe here in the next ten years? Yeah, well, the the, the mechanical one is is pretty much available, for, right? A la the Medtronic pump you just mentioned. Um, that does have a closed loop. It's approved by the FDA. It's a it's a big deal. Um, there's a, um, a, a several partnerships that Dexcom has with um, with uh, many meter companies. Um, I know that they're about, they're submitting right now to the FDA for a a low shutoff, um, which is probably the most critical part of a pump's functioning is to stop the insulin when someone's going hypo. So that's there'll be a lot more doing that. Um, I think there will be fully closed-loop systems with insulin only. Uh, Ed Damiano, uh, who I'm sure you've heard of at Boston University, has got a dual hormone pump which uses, in addition to insulin glucagon, to raise blood sugars. And uh that that model should be online hopefully the next three to four years uh, I know some people don't favor the glucagon the use of glucagon but um, I think in a desperate low situation it's nice to have that hormone to bring the blood sugar back up fairly quickly so those are those are kind of the mechanical fixes um, the combination of CGM and pump the the um, the biologic solutions are more complicated, generally involve stem cells, uh, usually in packets, uh, like what um, uh, Viacite has been attempting here in San Diego. Unfortunately, they recently announced that their packets were not getting adequate neovascularization, meaning that the new blood vessels to to bring oxygen and fresh blood supply food to the cells and then the, the venules or the veins to take away the waste products, it's just not functioning. And um, they announced that they're going to have to puncture the membrane and use immunosuppression drugs, which is a real step backwards, unfortunately, because it is more like the islet transplants that... <clears throat> started, um, let's see, I believe it was around the year 2000 with Shapiro up in Canada, um, that um, that proved to work for a period of time. There are 
some people that have had long-term success, but they've had to be on immunosuppression drugs. And as I'm sure you know, those have their own host of problems. Right. So, um, well, and I so think the, uh, I, I do want to talk about that briefly because, like you said, there have been successful implementations of of multiple different, from what at least from what I understand, multiple different um, islet cell uh, replacement surgeries or pancreatic transplant surgeries. And so, you know, I, I think the, the tendency is for someone with type 1 to do like a very little amount of research and see one of those or maybe somebody tags them in an article on social media or sends it to them via email or they see something where we have some like cure-related verbiage or rhetoric. And then you don't hear anything else about the follow-up or you don't hear anything else about it for a long time. What are what do we need to know? You know, at least from a global perspective, you know, the ten thousand foot view of these types of operations. What uh, what should you know your average type one uh, person take away from these? Well, I I would never have a procedure done like that without being fully aware of all the consequences and uh, positive and negative. Um, there's a lot of concern about these immunosuppression drugs, that they can bring on other diseases. And at least for me personally, and I'm, I would leave it to anyone to make their own decision, um, I would not want to use the immunosuppression drugs because I feel like I can regulate my diabetes well enough that I don't want to have to deal with the consequences of immunosuppression. And so to get back to your earlier question about what's on the horizon, um, there are a number of other companies and universities working on a better membrane than what Biocyte was using to encapsulate these beta cells so that you don't have to take the immunosuppression drugs because there's a problem with, um, with not just autoimmunity, which all type 1 diabetics have, but alloimmunity, which is the immunity to any foreign um, cells. And the islet or beta cells that are transplanted are from another individual. So the, the body rejects those outright absent these immunosuppression drugs. But if you take immunosuppression, you're, you're more likely to get sick earlier. There's been some evidence of increased cancer. Um, so the bottom line is I would have, <clears throat> I would want someone to thoroughly research it before doing it. Sometimes, you know, if you have a kidney that's gone bad or you have no kidneys, they do what are called PACs, which are pancreas and kidney. They take both organs um, uh, from a uh, donor, uh, um, presumably a brain-dead donor, and transplant the whole thing. And that, if you've got that kind of situation where the kidneys are failing uh, or have failed, then then it, it makes sense because then you'd have to be on dialysis and deal with um with regulating the diabetes. If you could do it all at once, uh, you know, it's just always a question of which which devil do you want. And so I think it's critical to be informed, again, from credible sources. Um, but to get back to the question of, of what else is on the horizon, there was some exciting research out of MIT involving a, a new company called Smart Cells. They were embedding insulin in 
a um, uh, gelatinous material that was glu glucose responsive. So this polymer um, could sense glucose levels, apparently could be adjusted to different levels, and say when blood sugar hit 180 or 200, the, the um, material would release the insulin into the bloodstream and bring the blood glucose level down and then stop releasing. So it, and my understanding is in its initial uh, formulation, it would require a once-daily injection. Now, I've always wondered about what happens if this material um, starts piling up and you have a high blood sugar and all of a sudden a ton of insulin comes on. That could be problematic. Um, anyway, all I know is that Merck bought the company, and I don't know what they're doing with it now, but there are other um, folks exploring that option. Um, there are uh, other potential solutions that involve uh, and this is where the research starts getting out on the on the outer edge, and and that's where diabetes research connection, which I can talk about later, is is playing. We are involved with extremely innovative scientists, usually early career. They have not yet been channeled to kind of go with traditional thinking. Um, one of our scientists, we gave a fifty thousand dollar grant to. He couldn't get it approval from any grant approval from anywhere else. Um, he figured out a way to get muscle cells to be glucose responsive and make insulin. And based on his preliminary data that he developed um, using our money, he then applied to the Keck Foundation and uh, was recently announced that they gave him a million dollars to pursue this science, which would be really cool if uh, your and my muscle cells could could be glucose responsive and start making insulin. Um, so the, there's work being done like that. We're we're funding work over at the uh, at the uh, Venter Institute, uh, where Craig Venter sequenced the first human genome, namely his own, many years ago. He was he was the first to do it. Um, over there, John Glass, who's actually a type 1 diabetic and a researcher, um, is working on different projects to um, find a bacterium that will be glucose responsive, make insulin, and be um, put into an immune-privileged subcutaneous site. And uh, they're getting some decent preliminary results. So if, if, if we can avoid the um, the problem of the auto and alloimmunity and have other cells in our body make um, insulin in response to glucose. I mean that would be unbelievable. So that right. that's that's some of the work that um, that we're supporting right now. What's um, what's it like to and I'm you know on a day to day basis to encounter those types of discoveries and the people who are, you know, pushing that type of research. And you mentioned that the, the money that you guys, um, you know, initially supplied, provided the research that, you know, provided another round of funding to, to get these things to become more of a reality. 
what what is that like for you? You know, not only from a you know career perspective and, and understanding what you guys do makes an or has an impact, but also, you know, getting to do something that gives back to a community that you're part of. Um, uh, just what what is that? What's that feel like? What is that? Uh, you know, personal satisfaction, or is that you know when at the end of the day you close up shop and you know that, yeah, you know what you've done is making a difference. You know, for people, you know, long term. Well, to me, it's the most rewarding thing in my life, at least, I mean, other than my family. It's, it's, um, it is a way to try to advance science, um, to support these brilliant researchers who have these out-of-the-box ideas. And um, when you see progress being made, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. I mean, the reality is that a lot of research fails, but what's important is that it doesn't fail in the sense that it adds to the body of knowledge, and we require all results to be published, which I think is critical because it avoids redundancy. In other words, other scientists aren't repeating the same work, or it gives new insight as to a better pathway to follow, but don't do what didn't work. Maybe tweak it a little bit. Um, so to me, what's important here is that we're we're building on a foundation of tremendous knowledge, but not enough to get us over the finish line. So we've got to keep adding so we can get to the point where we have a biologic cure, because I think ultimately that's, that's what everyone wants, is to have a simple operation and not think about being diabetic ever again. I mean, to, if we can get to that point, um, that, that'll be the greatest day in history for type 1 diabetics. Um, there's also work being done to try to cut out using CRISPR technology the, the genes that, um, that cause type 1 diabetes. So the, the pre-implantation of the embryo it would be uh, in vitro fertilization, but you'd cut the, di- the, the, um, the gene out and it wouldn't be passed on. So prevention may ultimately be as important or more important than than a cure. And I know it sounds like playing God, but um, I I can deal with it if 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 my offspring and and grandkids don't have diabetes, I'll be a much happier grandfather. So at this point, I don't know whether they'll get it or not. So, um, but to respond further to your question, <clears throat> what what I think is critical is giving back. I certainly um, didn't go into real estate because it was meaningful. I went into it to make money so that I could do some things that are meaningful. And I've always, as I mentioned earlier, had this interest in trying to further um, diabetes research because we all know what it's like to live with. I mean, clearly there are diseases that are that are worse, um, but you know some say if you had to have a disease this is the one but it, but i think we those of us that share this disease would rather not have it so so we'll keep working away at it right it's kind of one of those things where you know if you lined up every possible chronic illness that you could have you know man- managing diabetes is for sure not the worst one on the list uh but at the same time if you didn't have it you, you know you'd be much much more fulfilled and much happier um yep 
I think you know it's just, it's it's an interesting interesting topic and and your perspective is super super valuable. I think something that comes to mind to me at least on the lifestyle side of things and uh, you know I hope in some way that the lifestyle side of living with type 1 that I think we're in this period that I call the T1D renaissance where all of a sudden there are all these people online that you can connect with and follow that are living, you know, their life um you know, forward and sort of beyond and above and beyond their disease that you can, that you have access to and access to their daily life because of social media. And I think that's a good thing that has come out of that. And I'd love for that to extend or that sort of momentum to carry its way over into the research side where it causes people to learn more about day-to-day treatment, uh, to learn more about the research that's going in and and, uh, that needs to be supported and funded and awareness being built around uh, because I think there are a lot of positive stories, but at the same time, uh, we can't just rely on everybody to do their own individual research uh, and, and find those things. We just need a better way to share those and all these passionate people uh, online, you know, find a way to sort of integrate them into that process and sort of create advocates. Because like you said, giving back uh, you know, is, is the most important thing that we all can do. And there are ways for us to support. We've just got to you know, make sure that we back up our words with action. Well, and I strongly encourage people to go to our website, which is diabetesresearchconnection.org. That website um, has all of our projects that we've funded as well as the ones that are seeking funding now. And our process is to take some very complicated science and once approved by our over 80-member scientific review committee, to have it go to our lay review committee and then put it in very user-friendly, understandable language. So you don't have to um, be an expert in biological research or even diabetes. Um, it's uh, and The explanations are provided to hopefully get a prospective donor to understand what's going on and then contribute. But some of the work we also do is in the clinic. Um, I've had horrible experiences in hospitals. Um, either, I mean, it was the last time I was in for a serious operation, the emergency room said to me, asked me if my continuous glucose meter was a pump, and I, I said, "How do you suppose the insulin gets in me from the continuous glucose meter?" And then. I go to surgery, I get back to my room, no um, no Lantus was given to me. By the time I woke up at midnight, my blood sugar was 350. I said, I need insulin. Uh, immediately, they said, well, we don't have an order for that, and you didn't eat dinner, so you didn't need your Lantus. And I, I, I'm just, I, you know, my head was about to explode <laughs> because the care was just so bad. And I subsequently learned at this hospital that they killed somebody in the operating room with a 10x dose of insulin. Somebody just moved the decimal point over by one instead of five units. They got 50. They killed the guy. Another another gentleman gave himself insulin before he went into surgery. He didn't tell anybody. His blood sugar was high. And he came out brain dead. And I said to them, why can't you put a continuous glucose meter on people in the hospital, especially in the operating room, but also in the patient's room and have that information 
sent wirelessly to the nurse's station. And they said, well, we could, but we have to get approval from the Joint Commission on Hospital Administration. I said, so what do we do to make that happen? They said, well, we have to run a clinical trial. Well, if you go to our website, you will see that we're funding a clinical trial right now to use continuous glucose meters in the hospital. And the name of the project is blood glucose as a vital sign. Because let's face it, um, for a type 1 diabetic, blood glucose is just about as important as saturated oxygen or uh, blood pressure or anything else. I mean, if we start going through the floor, as evidenced by the death uh, of the individual and the brain death of the other one, it's critical that we know what the blood sugars are doing. And so we're supporting that kind of work. We're also supporting uh, one of the new uh, projects we just put up is to is to provide credible education for type 1 diabetics online. Um, Penn State University is doing this. There's an MD whose husband and daughter have type 1 diabetes. She, uh, her last name is Oser. She's, she's highly motivated to get this thing to work. And so we're trying to put together the seed funding for, um, for her to be able to provide this course that will be online. So until we have a cure, we need to deal with care as best we can. And um, so we're, we're supporting that as well. So basically where there's a need um, and the seed funding that we provide can get something off the ground, or in the case of this um, series of, of talks that will be online and there will also be a manual created, um, the $50,000 will do it. It'll fund the whole thing. So um, we are just looking for great research. We get more applications than we can possibly fulfill. And so we select the best ones we can find. I think we've had something like 70 applications and have funded 12 so far, have four more online and another one coming soon. So um, I Again, encourage people to go to diabetesresearchconnection.org, and I hope you can put it on your website. And also, we have some really exciting news. We had a wonderful meeting with uh, the folks at Beyond Type 1 last um, week. They, I'm guessing you know them, they, they have over a million two followers, and um, they want to work with us on the cure side because they're all about education, advocacy, and cure. And um, so we're going to help them not only in terms of where they put their own money, but to also um, publicize the work we're doing. And very importantly, both Beyond Type 1 and Diabetes Research Connection cause 100% of the donations, in our case, to go to the research, in their case, to go to the education and advocacy. And now that will be a compliment to them, um, uh, it's it's all very wise, positive expenditure of money. So uh, we hope people will consider that. It feels good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think adding that component to the Beyond Type 1 piece is super important. And I think you know, the, the advocacy, I can't say enough about the great job that they do, uh, on, on the advocacy and and the lifestyle, um, and the community aspect. They've, they really have changed, uh, the way people 
respond to being diagnosed with type one uh, here in a very short amount of time. Um, right. And, you know, for you guys, what, what a huge, uh, a huge compliment for you guys to be a part of that now as well. Uh, and the work that you guys are doing. Um, I'm absolutely going to include a, and in, you know, all the relevant links and, uh, you know, make sure that we, you know, are creating as much awareness within the community about what you guys are doing as well. Because, you know, if we don't do, you know, what good is all the work on the advocacy side, if we can't follow that up on the clinical side, um, right. you know, right. the, just hearing you talk about, you know, the resistance of a continuous glucose monitor as a, as a, a key component to a surgical operation for someone with type one diabetes is, is ridiculous. Like, of course it's, it's essential to, uh, why, why aren't we doing it? I think part of it, um, I've talked to multiple airline, former airline pilots, commercial airline pilots who are now type one and, you know, they're unable to fly commercial aircraft, but you know, they're, you know, in the terms of the medical board, you know, with, with a continuous glucose monitor, there's honestly less likelihood of anything going wrong with them than any other airline pilot with risk of heart disease or, uh, or stroke or any other type of, you know, chronic illness that strikes sort of without warning. Um, so, you know, just the, the idea that, you know, there's technology already out there that can change the way that we, uh, many of us live or make our living or, you know, uh, go under, under the, the, uh, under the knife with, you know, just better visibility into, you know, our vital signs. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's staggering, you know, the stuff that you don't hear about. Um, yeah. And that's now, when I, when I learned that uh, about those deaths, I just couldn't believe it. It was shocking and, uh, clearly something had to be done about it. So we're trying to do that, but most hospitals won't do anything until it's proven to be efficacious and, you know, there's a cost involved, clearly, but I know that one of those lawsuits was settled for $5 million, um, so they got to think about that cost, too, for the for the negligence involved. So I'm hopeful that we'll change some protocols, uh, again, before we've got a cure, but we need to be working on all fronts, as you said. So, And I, I, I just also want to clarify that we we just had our first meeting with Beyond Type 1. They seem very enthusiastic, and, and so are we about a partnership, but we're going to be easing into it, see how it goes. But uh, I see nothing but mutual synergy there. I think it'll be great for both organizations. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'm excited to see uh, kind of how that pans out, and uh, I, lo- I love a little bit of insider info right up front. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Um, so... so- I do want to talk uh, quickly as we kind of uh, wrap up because I think we've gotten a lot of really great information. And I think um, I might have to have you on another episode, you know, in a few months time to just kind of get an update on all that you guys are doing at uh, Diabetes Research Connection and um, sort of just an update on, you know, what's going on in the world of diabetes research because I think it's really important for us to continue to spread that message. But something that I always ask all my guests um, is is this similar the same question, and I've gotten a variety of different answers uh, over the years now. Um, but the context is really important, so I'll give it to you here. It's uh, imagine that you are in an airport, um, and they are about to close the door to your gate, and for whatever reason you can't miss the flight. There's you know either family or a, you know a wedding or important meeting or whatever on the other end, and you've got to be on that plane. 
Um, but you run into somebody who's either recently been diagnosed with type one or is struggling with their type one. Uh, so what's, what's the one thing that you leave that person with in the 30 seconds that you have with them? What's the one thing you tell them? I would tell them to make sure they've got a great endocrinologist to read as much as they possibly could to get a CGM and to, uh, carefully monitor their, their, activities in blood glucose and try to figure out the causation that the, the most critical thing is to try to normalize blood glucose levels and then i would tell them to support research <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but also you know as i said earlier to there's no reason why you can't lead a full complete life same as anyone else i, I traveled in asia with a backpack for Four and a half months, I've climbed up mountains, I've been in a competitive sailor, I've done all kinds of things. There's there's no reason. I've been to undergraduate law school. Just do whatever you want to do and don't let the diabetes stop you. There's no reason to. I love it. And, uh, you know, and in the spirit of supporting research, I, you know, this is uh, one of the first clinical sort of research discussions that we've had on this podcast. And I hope to do more of that um, going forward, just because I think, you know, the more we all know about what's going on behind the scenes, the better we can support it, the better conversations we can all have. So David, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, and, uh, you know, really looking forward to uh, following you and, and diabetes research connection as well, much more closely here. Uh, in the future and uh you know hope to you know meet you in person one of these days i love san diego so i gotta get out there sooner than later well absolutely come visit i'd love to see you and meet you and um thank you for all that you're doing it's it's a wonderful website great podcast and glad that you're getting out to the t1d community because the more we communicate and be a community the better off we're going to be so it's great couldn't agree more. Uh, so thank you, David, for coming on the show. That's uh, diabetesresearchconnection.org, uh, guys, if you want to check them out online, and we'll post those to the show notes as well. And just a quick note that we are, of course, a 501c3, and uh, you may be able to take a big deduction depending on <laughs> where you fit in the new tax law. <laughs> but that's, uh, we are a nonprofit. So. Okay. Well, thanks so much again for your time.